You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Israel is about to mark this month the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Agreements. And uh, it was a failure. It failed to prevent the militarization of the West Bank and Gaza. And by extension, it strengthened the Arab communities in Israel. So it's fairly obvious that Israel is suffering from a wave of terrorism today and also a lot of criminal violence in the Arab-Israeli section. And it's all facilitated by the ease of these Arabs obtaining weapons and tremendous widespread ability. The weapons available to terrorists and criminal gangs are increasingly advanced and sophisticated. Now, the results are really bad. Close to 40 Israeli Jews killed in Palestinian terror attacks so far this year, and over 170 Israeli Arabs and Bedouin killed by other Arabs in crime and gang-related violence. So despite all the counter-terrorist operations of the army and the police, the proliferation of weapons is on a very sharp rise, and consequently so is the murder rate. This is a critical security issue, and it is a real bad matter for our society. It is a crisis of huge proportions. If you ask any government or military official just how many unlicensed and illegal weapons are on the loose in Israel, particularly in the Israeli Arab communities and also in the Palestinian areas, you won't get an answer. Nobody knows for sure. You hear all kinds of answers, but mostly massive, unlimited. More than a decade decade ago, more than 10 years ago, police estimates stood at half a million illegal weapons. And since then, many more weapons are out there. Almost every day you read reports, particularly within the Arab community, of people being killed, family arguments, gangs, and things of that nature. So the question you have to ask yourself first is where, where all these weapons have come from, come from. According to the State Controller's report from 2019, there are many sources of, of uh, illegal weapons, and it's really interesting. It's, there's, first, it's cross-border smuggling. Second, is local manufacturing. Third, is theft from the army bases. Fourth, is theft from Israeli homes and so forth. Iran is publicly claiming credit for a percentage of the weapons inflow and apparently is certainly funding much of it. Back in August of 2022, the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Corps, bragged how he was driving weapons to Palestinian 
Palestinians engaged in jihad against Israel, adding that just as Iran managed to send weapons to Gaza in the past, the West Bank can be armed in the same way, and this is what is happening. The smuggling of weapons. You don't see big headlines about this. They come from Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, and it is a big challenge. A July study entitled Guns, Drugs, and Smugglers, a recent heightened challenge at Israel's borders with Jordan and Egypt. This report was written by a two people of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And by the way, it's published by the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point in the U.S. Army. They indicate for every smuggling attempt identified or stopped, a vast number of other smuggling get through successfully without authorities even learning about them. Now, of course, some smuggling attempts are intercepted. Uh, Israeli guards alone the Jordanian border have, over the past few years intercepted about 1,600 weapons destined for Palestinian terrorists and Arab criminal gangs. There were 26 separate smuggling attempts that were stopped. In April this year, this included the arrest of a member of the Jordanian parliament, no less, who was caught trying to smuggle 200 weapons into the West Bank. In June, this included professional-grade Iranian-made explosives. Now, the, the Israeli officials admitted to the American researchers that the Jordan border is long and porous. Most of the time, the IDF's Bedouin trackers discover cross-border incursions only after the fact. They're very good at tracing footprints but they don't catch the people themselves. So, despite the enormity of the problem, only one division of Israeli troops hold down the entire Jordan border from the Sea of the Galilee to the Dead Sea, and only one division more patrols the Haravah from the Dead Sea down to a lot. You can drive down, there's a road along the uh, Jordan River. You can drive down, it's a, it's a passenger road. I mean, I've gone down that road many times. Apparently, that's one of the major places where smuggling takes place. So every now and then, they, 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 they catch a, a large arms uh, shipment, and they, and they write about it. It just happens in the negative, the Galilee or the West Bank. And back in 2022, this amounted to about 500 guns and rifles, mines, and hand grenades, stun grenades, and explosives, up by more than a third for 2021. 92%, according to estimates, of the armed smugglers and dealers that were arrested were Arab or Palestinian. Number of Palestinian Arabs. Now, this is really not or not. A drop in the bucket. Weapons continue to be easily smuggled into Israel in substantial numbers, big numbers, and are being also being stolen from Israeli depots. Last over, last October, thirty thousand bullets were stolen from an ammunition warehouse in the south. In November, seventy thousand bullets and seventy grazers were taken from an army base in the Golan Heights, which one would expect to be well guarded. 
Now, what what are, what does uh, what do these weapons cost? Interesting. I have a nine millimeter gun. A nine millimeter bullet for a handgun might today cost as much as ten dollars for a for a, a bullet, one bullet. Handguns reportedly cost thirteen thousand dollars to twenty three thousand but dollars on the black market, depending on the age, the type, and the condition. The same weapon legally obtained in Israel costs about $1,350. In other words, legally, it's a less than $2,000. Illegally, you can pay up to $23,000 for it. Now, look at a rifle. The, uh, the, you can buy a, an M4 rifle for about $30,000. Uh, if you go to Lebanon, you can buy it for $5,000. An assault rifle, Kalashnikov, costs about $20,000. And an old M16 rifle, like we used to use in the Army, sells for about $16,000. That's a lot of money. As a result, according to the Israeli Army, Bedouin and Arab smugglers can make a huge profit for any uh, smuggling operation. So buying illegals' weapons costs a lot of money, and therefore there's a lot of money to be made by the people doing the smuggling. So now the dirty secret behind all this that's happening now is that it all started with the Oslo Accords, when Israel agreed to give the Palestinian Authority weaponry. There is a direct line that runs from Oslo to the current situation, which can best be called a Wild West situation. Israel's, Israel provided Yasser Arafat's police force with tens of thousands of rifles, hundreds of tons of ammunition. Those weapons ended up in the shooting arms of Arafat's 16 different declared security organizations and many others declared an undeclared terrorist faction. In other words, 30 years later, we see what a, we, we know Oslo was a mistake, but the, the, the weapons, illegal weapons aspect of uh, Oslo is something that doesn't get many headlines, but it's probably the biggest part of, one of the biggest parts of the Oslo mistake. Now, in the beginning, Israel sought to monitor and control the use of weapons in the Palestinian Authority by registering the ballistic signature of every gun and rifle before giving it over to Arafat. But the hostile area enthusiasm for strengthening the Palestinian Authority led to more and more helter-skelter arms handovers. Israel soon lost track of the weapons. This is a real tragedy. The U.S. and other Western countries involved in providing security assistance and also providing training to the Palestinian Authority were supposed to have a handle on this problem, but they soon lost track. So there's huge armories of Arafat and his organization of gunmen. It's out of control. Now, unfortunately, much of this Israel-provided weaponry was directed at Israeli civilians and at our army troops. 
All this happened during the so-called second intifada, and that led to the need for what was called Operation Defensive Shield back in 2002, which is more than 20 years ago. So at, at time, after, after they did this Operation Defense Shield, there was a, a, a tight Israeli grip on the flow of weaponry, but by, in 2004, the then defense minister named Shaul Mofas reapproved gun licenses for all Palestinian Authority police officers. Over the years since, and under American pressure to ease up on the Palestinian Authority and to strengthen Arafat's successor, Mahmoud Abbas, the Israeli army has further relented, leading to the current weapons loose state of affairs. Weapons are, it's a major problem now. Very little is said about it in the headlines. But it's a real, every day we read in the paper now, there is violence in the Arab communities. This is Arabs against Arabs involving weaponry. Where did all this weaponry come from? Today, the Israeli Arab Bedouin Palestinian Arab weapons economy is integrated with smugglers, thieves, manufacturers, suppliers, and also the Iranians are servicing the terrorists and criminal markets. And so Israel made a colossal mistake three decades ago. They not only peddled the dangers of Oslo, but also promised Israelis at that time 30 years ago, they promised a demilitarized West Bank and a demilitarized Gaza under all political circumstances. This was a historical mistake. Now, those in charge of securing Israel's borders, and today Israel's borders are porous to weaponry, those in charge and all those military experts turned out to be wrong. And also police officials in charge of order in Israel's minority communities, in particular the Arab community, everybody knows that become a fiefdom of various mafia-type Arab organizations with nightly shootouts. Interesting. They don't get the big headlines because they're within the Arab community. If, if, if suddenly breaks, something happens, an Arab attack in the Jewish community, it gets a headline. But there is tremendous violence in the Israeli-Arab community, and it's enforced by all this illegal weaponry. So all these security officials have utterly failed over the past 30 years. So this is simply one more aspect of the Oslo legacy. Oslo was a big mistake, and we, we, the headlines tell us what a big mistake it was vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian Authority and the fact that the Palestinian Authority could not hold on to Gaza and lost to another terror group. But in the meantime, that, that result of the, of the uh, Oslo Agreement that led to all this illegal 
weaponry in the state of Israel and in the areas of the Palestinian Authority, direct result of Oslo, you don't hear much about, but it's, become, it's becoming worse day by day. As I said a moment ago, much of this doesn't get into the headlines because it's within the Arab community. So if um, you read maybe on page 10 of a newspaper that there was a killing in, in an Arab town or uh, some kind of uh, weaponry, uh, use of weaponry in an Arab town, it doesn't get a big headline. But it's all part of the same thing. It's all, all part of the Oslo mistake. It's getting worse. And something really has to be done about it. You don't hear the, much about our government, do, government doing anything about it, but it's becoming a bigger problem. It's creeping into the headlines, and it's something we should be aware of. It's, it reminds me, there are societies where there are problems that, that develop, and, and for a while you're not so much aware of them, then suddenly they burst forth. I think to myself about the news I get about all these illegal immigrants uh, that are coming into the United States. And I was just uh, saw an article about what's happening in the city of New York. There, there are areas in the city of New York that are slowly being taken over by illegal, illegal immigrants. And the normal, the mortal, the normal citizen can't, is not safe anymore. It's a problem that began I guess you could call it quietly a couple of years ago, and now suddenly it's blossomed forth. But the same thing with the illegal weaponry here in Israel. It's been going on for 30 years, and now suddenly it is blossoming forth, and it is becoming a major problem. And it's something that our government has to do something about. Because if we read, you know, it's, it's interesting the, uh, the cities of Israel, even Jerusalem, which is a mixed city, are known to be safe. I see women walking alone at night here in Jerusalem. That's something you don't see in major cities outside of Israel. But the, the situation is just below the surface, and it could suddenly burst forth, and Israel could become a dangerous place. And all of this goes back to the terrible mistake of Oslo. 30 years is a fairly long time when you're talking about human lifetime. 30 years is not long in the life of a nation. The state of Israel is just over 75 years old. And 30 years ago, our government made a terrible mistake. And now that mistake is blossoming forth and it's something that we have to live with. And, and again, uh, tell the listeners, I hate to bring this up as sort of a gloom and doom, but it's reality, and we have to keep an eye on it. It's a reality that's getting worse, and we have to live with, and we have to do something about it. Otherwise, our future is in jeopardy, and the future of our children and the safety of our streets is in jeopardy. I'll be back after the break. 
Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. We're right before Rosh Hashanah, and uh, a week, uh, a few days from now, that'll be followed by the 10 days of penitence and Yom Kippur, which brings to mind the Yom Kippur War. 30 years ago, the Oslo Accords were signed between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization. And it was seen as a major breakthrough as as peace for which Arafat and the leaders of Israel received the Nobel Prize. And it began what they called a peace process. Now it's interesting how the word is process. I'm not quite sure what it means. For example, if you think about it for a moment, the Second World War, from the time the Americans entered the war, the rest of the war was really a peace process because it led to peace. So I'm not sure what the word peace process means because peace process can also mean war. Depends which part of the war. Somebody starts a war, He's not starting a peace process, but somebody fights a war in order to bring it to an end. Essentially, they are involved in a peace process. But at any rate, the so-called peace process began. Now, what has happened since the Oslo Accords? And once in a while, we have to review the history to remind ourselves There was continuous Palestinian terror under a leadership what was formed then called the Palestinian Authority. It included suicide bombings, car rammings, knifings, and all the kind of terror attacks. All of this were enabled by the Accords. Now, many people are sad because They lost the peace they thought was merely just around the corner. And they wondered what caused the peace process to fail. Now, it's very interesting if you think about it. The answer is that international agreements, the very same things that caused one side to see failure to make the other side see as success. Whereas the terror that Oslo enabled against Israel was a tragic failure for Israel and for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the terror made it a success because that was one of the goals set by the Palestinian leadership when they signed. But as Noted by Itamar Marcus, who uh, evaluates these situations, this is not merely conjecture after the fact. Since its inception, the Palestinian Authority leadership 
has been declaring their terror goals for the Oslo process. But, on the other hand, as opposed to this, Israeli leaders made the unbelievable decision to believe what the Palestinian leaders told them in private. But they didn't take into account what the Palestinian leaders were telling their own people in public. In public, they were telling their people one thing, and in private, they were telling the Israeli leadership something completely opposite. One of the clearest enunciations that the purpose of the Oslo Agreement was to facilitate terror was reported by the Palestinian Medium Watch just right after Arafat launched the Intifada in 2000, and it was articulated by the minister of the Palestinian government. He said, the Palestinian people accepted the Oslo Accords as a first step and not as a permanent settlement, based on the premise that the war and struggle against Israel is more efficient than a struggle from a distant land, because at that time, the terror groups was located in Tunisia, and the Oslo Agreement brought them back here to our land. So the leadership said, and I quote, the Palestinian people will continue the revolution till they achieve the goals of the revolution, which is destruction of Israel. This was said by the Minister of Supplies of the Palestinian Authority on May 30th, 2000, 23 years ago. Now, he was obviously explicit about the goal of Oslo being increased terror and the destruction of Israel. Because the PLO had trouble directing terrorists from far away Tunisia and signed the Oslo Accords to direct terror against Israelis from here in the land. Everything that has happened in the last 30 years is encapsulated in those words. And yet, the leadership of Israel chose to ignore these things. And the truth of the matter is, the promise of terror came repeatedly, even earlier in the process. But in 1996, the chief PL negotiator for the Oslo Accords promised Palestinians that the automatic rifles that Israel gave to the PA police would be turned on Israelis unless, unless they gave, the Israelis gave in to every single Palestinian demand. In other words, this is what the Palestinian leadership told its people while it was telling the Israeli leadership that it's looking to make peace. So, and then the, the, the it, it's interesting when when the, the the idea of the Palestinian authority was to do things step by step. The idea was to get as many armed Palestinian soldiers as possible and then to do what they have to do to get rid of Israel. The, uh, as the leadership said at that time, if we get to a deadlock and you can't 
move any further, they'll return to the fighting and struggle, and they'll just keep struggling. Moreover, the fact that the goal was not to achieve peace was explicitly stated by Yasser Arafat himself. Right after he signed the Oslo Accords, and he repeated it for over 30 years. Arafat compared the Oslo Accords to a, an infamous treaty called the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, a peace agreement that Muhammad signed with a tribe of Mecca when he was too weak to conquer them. Two years later, he trampled the agreement and he conquered Mecca. In other words, you signed an agreement when you're not strong enough to win, and you signed an agreement to gain time until you're strong enough to win. That was the goal of the Palestinian Authority as they told their own people. That's the way it was. The uh, It's interesting. Um, Arafat was recorded saying in, in a speech in Johannesburg, in May of 1994, that the Oslo Agreement, uh, he said, I'm not considering it more than the agreement which had been signed between our Prophet Muhammad and that tribe back in the days of Muhammad. By the way, he, he uh, Arafat made that speech in a mosque in um, Johannesburg, South Africa, and somebody uh, uh, recorded it and gave it to somebody who was coming into Israel, and uh, he brought it to Israel, and he contacted me, and he gave me the recording, which I gave to someone who took to give to, uh, give to at that time, Prime Minister uh, Rabin, who heard it, and it did nothing about it. That's something I happen to have been involved in myself. So how could Israel have missed these numerous other warning signs that the, throughout the process, the other side was saying that the whole thing was a phony. How did the Israeli negotiators accept the verbal promises without demanding any concrete steps to show sincerity, knowing that throughout history, deception has been a fundamental strategy to undermine enemies? So it's interesting. Deception usually involves strategy and planning. For example, the Allied attack on D-Day on, uh, back in uh, 1945, 44, <laughs> I forgot my history, on June 6th. The Allied attack on D-Day succeeded because a full program of deception was engaged in called Operation Bodyguard, which included phantom field armies, fake wireless messages, false leaks by diplomats, and a lot more to trick the Germans into believing that the Allies were not landing in Normandy. As a matter of fact, if you check out the history, you find that the U.S. parachuted dolls and uh, floated dummies uh, and near uh, potential landing sites. So looking back at 30 years of Palestinian Authority glorified and rewarding terrorists, 
What is so shocking about the Oslo deception is that the PLO, which in 1993 was still a terrorist organization, needed to do nothing to deceive the Israeli leaders. They just had to come to the table and sign a piece of paper. You didn't have to do any parachuting dolls or dummies or anything else. All they had to do was come to a table and sign a piece of paper. So there's so there was no trial period, there's no attempt to wait for the re-education of Palestinian youth. And I think we can say that the major problem we had was that the Israeli politicians were over-eager so the, uh, to believe that the PLO no longer wanted to destroy Israel. There were Israeli negotiators and Israeli leaders who were so anxious to have a peace agreement that they ignored all the signs, all the caution, and they actually let themselves be deceived. That's what happened back in 1993. What's even more shocking is that the Israeli government already has only had, had all the evidence that Oslo was a deception. As early as 1996, the uh, Palestinian Media Watch had reported that the Palestinian Authority's terror engagement messages to the Palestinian people were, were continuing. In 1997, the Palestinian Media Watch, an Israeli group, exposed the Palestinian Authority's promotion of terror and martyrdom to children in kindergarten. They were being indoctrinated with hate and violence through the school books within the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority was telling its people that Tel Aviv and Jaffa and Haifa were Palestinian cities to be liberated, but in stages. They, 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 they talked about the Palestinian police getting weapons from the Israelis and then turning their weapons against the Israelis. This is what they said in their media. Suicide bombers were already murdering Israelis on buses and malls in Israeli cities. Israeli government had all the information, but acted like gamblers, continuing to throw more money into the pot, refusing to accept the shame the guilt and the responsibility of having walked itself into a death trap with the Palestinian Authority. So, Oslo was a trap that fundamentally changed Israel's security predicament, exposing the country to 30 years of terror with no end in sight. Yet, according to Palestinian leadership, it was not a failure. For the same reasons that Israelis say Oslo failed, the Palestinians considered that Oslo succeeded because they went from being away in somewhere in North Africa and Tunisia to
to right here in our heartland, and we're armed by the Israelis. The Deputy Minister of Prisoner Affairs for the Palestinian Authority, and I quote him, he said, Oslo is the effective and potent greenhouse which embraced the Palestinian resistance. Without Oslo, there would never have been resistance in all the occupied territories. We could not move a single pistol from place to place. Without Oslo and being armed through Oslo, we would not have been able to create this great Palestinian intifada. That's what he said. Another uh, member of the Fatah Central Committee, uh, he commented, the arms over 30,000 rifles that were used against the Israeli enemy in Gaza and other places were brought into the Palestinian Authority in accordance with the Oslo Accords. When we refer to the negative aspects of the Oslo Accords, we should also look at their other positive aspects. So, you could say this, the Oslo Accord was a major success for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and it was a major failure for Israel. So there never was a peace process. It simply never existed. What, what bothers me, quite honestly, is the fact that our leaders, the Israeli leaders, who led us blindly into this trap, bringing back a terrorist organization from Tunisia to right into our heartland, they never paid the price for this. They continued Yitzhak Rabin and all the other members that had come and stayed in power, and, and uh, the Labor Party continued to exist. They never took blame. As a matter of fact, one of the architects of that agreement, Yossi Balin, still is an honored uh, member of the Israeli press. He writes articles every week. Due to the matter is the people who brought the the uh, Oslo agreement on us should be ashamed. They should hide their faces. The reason I bring this up, I mean, obviously this is a subject that goes on and on, but as we approach the high holidays, and even though Yom Kippur is uh, more than three weeks away, as we approach this time of the year, and as we approach Yom Kippur, I remind myself of what it was like 50 years ago when Israelis had the, the, the innocence, if you will, to think that peace was right around the corner. When you come to realize that we have an enemy who simply will not give up, only can be defeated, these are the facts of life. It's not like a war like the Second World War which Germany uh, was defeated and it had to be denazified. Today there are still some Nazis around. That's uh, 80 years after the war, they're showing their heads again. But um, we face the, the Palestinian Authority, which has never given up its desire to destroy the state of Israel. And we have to realize that. It's a horrible thing to realize, but it's true. And if, if you want to face the future properly, you have to know 
what our enemies are thinking and what they have in store for us and we have to prepare ourselves accordingly. That is really, I think, the lesson of Oslo, that you can't go into an agreement without knowing the possible uh, chances of failure and what failure will mean. Anyhow, I, uh, I spent a few minutes on that because uh, as we approach Jim Kipper again, these thoughts come back in my mind. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Now that we're coming toward uh, what's called the high holiday season, I want to touch upon a subject that one very rarely hears about. But uh, I came across an article by an old friend of mine named uh, Yosef Wolke, who was a rabbi. He was a retired rabbi, and actually is also a psychologist. He was my neighbor for many years in uh, Ginot Shomron, and uh, afterwards he moved to uh, Beit Shemesh. At any rate, he wrote an article about the duties of a rabbi, something that you very rarely come across. And I thought I would share it uh, with the listeners, particularly since we're coming up to the high holiday season when rabbis are very busy. And it's also the time of year when new new rabbis get their position, it's a time of the year when rabbis are really tested by the congregation. And he had these many years of experience as a pulpit rabbi, as a congregational rabbi. And I thought the uh, listeners would be interested to hear what he had to say. Also, uh, one of the things he mentions is the fact that in America, you go to a synagogue and the synagogue has a rabbi. That is not necessarily true in Israel. The rabbis are appointed uh, pretty much by the uh, state, and the people themselves very often have no choice in who the rabbi will be in their congregation or who the rabbi will be be in their particular city where they live or particular community. And it's something new immigrants to Israel are confused because how is the community structured in Israel? The When you live in a place like the United States, the organized community, the Jewish community, particularly the Orthodox, and uh, also the conservative and reform, they pretty much revolve around the synagogue and its rabbi. Their expectations that a rabbi based on that model. So when you come to Israel, there are many differences that they encounter. The, the communities in different countries have different expectations from their leadership. There is no one job description that fits everybody. For example, in the United States and Canada, where I, I am, my experience is, 
There is no essential rabbinic authority. The congregations are essentially independent and define themselves how they want to behave pretty much and choose their rabbis. So the rabbis are expected to satisfy what the congregation considers to be its religious needs. And so they're uh, involved with families throughout all stages of the life cycle. The uh, Rabbi Wolicki um, mentions uh, an interesting way of describing it. Rabbis are involved with hatching, matching, and uh, latching, and uh, dispatching. In some communities, they're also involved in matching, arranging weddings. But in general, it's hatching, covering births, latching, marriage, and dispatching. And when they die. Now, the in North America, a rabbi's participation in all life cycle events is essential. The rabbi is also responsible for the kashrut locally in his community. He's responsible for the mikveh, the ritualarium. He's responsible for the Hebrew school or the day school. He's responsible for youth program, community program, and also he's also responsible, believe it or not, for fundraising. And uh, he's also called upon to provide marriage counseling and also counseling in moments of grief. So that's the general idea. A rabbi is pretty much involved in the life of his congregation. So the, a rabbi has to learn his community and do what the community is expected of him because essentially the rabbi has a contract with a congregation. Since the rabbi is an employee, he signs a contract with the congregation. So the, the lay leaders of the congregation determine the terms of employment and uh, what, the what the salary is and things like that. And so when a rabbi comes to a community in the United States or Canada, he negotiates a contract with the congregation. And the renewal of the contract is dependent on the rabbi performing the way the congregation wants. So that does not apply in Israel whatsoever. The, the Israeli rabbinate is based on a very different model. The, and qualifications are different. Uh, I know myself, having lived in various communities, that there are rabbis that you perhaps never even see. They were appointed by the rabbinate for a particular city. They may go to one of the congregations as a general rule, but there could be other congregations in the community. The rabbi never shows up. There is an official, legally constituted rabbinic authority which has, he has administrative authority, he has a judicial authority. The chief rabbis and the chief rabbinate in Israel 
are authorized to oversee personal status issues for the Jewish population of Israel. In other words, when you go to get married, for example, the rabbi has to be recognized by the state. He fills out the marriage paperwork, and he then records it at the local rabbinate. So that includes marriage, divorce, conversion, burial, and also the rabbis here may often have an occasion to verify the fact that a particular new ole, a new immigrant to Israel, is indeed Jewish. There's a big problem here, particularly for Jews coming from the Soviet Union. The rabbis are responsible for the certification of kosher established and the ritual baths, the mikvot, and the rabbinical courts. Now, how do you become a rabbi officially in Israel? Well, you were ordained by a, uh, when a particular individual takes examinations administered by the chief rabbinate. There's nothing like that in the United States. I have a grandson now who uh, wants to become ordained as a rabbi, and uh, he has to take a series of, uh, of uh, examinations to prove that he knows Jewish law, and the examinations are very difficult, and they're giving over a long period of time. He, he took one of the examinations already, and I think the next one is in about six months when he'll be asked to uh, he'll be tested on other aspects of the Jewish law. So in Israel, there are different exams for each category of rabbi. The categories include neighborhood rabbi, uh, rabbi of a settlement, a moshav, a town rabbi, a regional rabbi, a city rabbi, and also a rabbinical judge. These are all different rabbinical positions, and they all require different examinations given by the chief rabbinate and, um, and judged by the chief rabbinate. Each category for all these different kinds of rabbis has its own qualifications. And the rabbis themselves do not get paid by the congregation. They get paid by the government. In addition to all of this, many congregations choose to appoint a congregational rabbi. Then this rabbi they choose to appoint is outside the official rabbinate. Many of these positions are part-time or even volunteer positions. There are rabbis who offer classes in Torah. They answer personal and congregational halakha questions, Jewish law, and also engage in counseling couples and, and uh, that have problems or before marriage. And uh, any, any amount that they get paid come solely from the members of the congregation. For a congregation rabbi to officiate at a wedding, an authorization from the official rabbinate is required. And uh, if you get married by a rabbi who is not recognized by the rabbinate, 
in a sense, you're not, you're not officially married. The, uh, and all of this that I mentioned so far doesn't include rabbis who serve as teachers and administrators in various educational institutions. So, be, interestingly enough, memory of, memory, many of the functions of counseling that are done by a rabbi in the United States or in Canada are provided in Israel by agencies of the government. Many in the helping professions are sensitive to religious sensibilities of their, of their clients, even if, if they're, not, they're not observing themselves, which is often not the case in places like Canada and the United States. There, uh, so a rabbi in Israel, there are many, many different kinds of rabbis. It's not the same as a rabbi in the United States and Canada. And it's something that I, I realized for many years after I came to live here in Israel. But finally, my friend Rabbi Willicke finally wrote an article which he which is particularly useful, I think, for new immigrants because the, the, the expectations of a rabbi here in Israel from his congregants very, very different what they expect from, um, from the, the rabbi in congregations in the United States. Uh, I know I lived for a while in Rehovot. The chief rabbi of Rehovot was not appointed by his congregation. He was appointed by the state. He was very well beloved. Rabbi Cook, he passed away a few years ago. And uh, he would travel uh, and spend different uh, Sabbaths at different congregations so the people would get to know him. But he was not required to do that. He was a he worked for the state of Israel. He didn't work for the congregations, actually. But he was very well loved because he looked upon himself as a servant of the congregations, not of the state. Yeah, both kind of rabbis. Anyhow, I wanted the listeners to have an idea how different this is in Israel than it is in the United States. Now, I want to go on to a different subject, which is really quite important. And that's about anti-Semitism, particularly in the, uh, on the campuses in the United States. The, uh, a survey was done recently, and close to 60% of American Jewish students have encountered or witnessed some kind of anti-Semitic incident. Nearly one-third of the students surveyed, about 30%, have witnessed or experienced an anti-Semitic incident on campus at their college, and a 44% witnessing anti-Semitic incidents in public places. So there is an alarming prevalence of anti-Semitism within educational institutions in the United States and also among the broader public. Anti-Semitism went under cover after the Second World War when the results of what happened in Europe were so bad that the anti-Semites didn't want to raise their ugly heads for 70 years. But now anti-Semitism is on the rise again. The, uh, 
There is a nonprofit organization founded by Jewish students to support Jewish students, and it's called Jewish on Campus. And together with the World Jewish Congress, they did this survey. They, the survey included a little over 3,000 college students, and it had the uh, approximately a third of them, of these 3,000 students, identified themselves as Jewish. And of course, the survey has a margin of error of a few percentage points. Of the students who experienced or witnessed anti-Semitism on campus, a little over 70% encountered um, what they, we call microaggression. Uh, like uh, hate speech, uh, about 50% noticed or fell victim to vandalism, a little over 40% came across conspiracy theories, and about 21% were subjected to wishes for death or genocide against Jews. People made remarks like that to Jews or friends of Jews who heard the thing happen. So, the, uh, the distinction in perceptions of anti-Semitism between Jewish students and the broader student population is kind of big. Close to 85% of the Jewish students perceive anti-Semitism as a severe threat in the United States, but maybe a little over 60% of the general public students agree with this view. In other words, the Jews are more sensitive to anti-Semitism, even though the non-Jews witnessed anti-Semitism. And furthermore, the uh, it, it turns out, and this is rather shocking, about 15% of college students express skepticism about the Holocaust historical authenticity. The uh, the uh, the organization called Jewish on Campus made a comment that the analysis of the anti-Semitism Jewish students face, measured on an unprecedented scale, underscores the urgency of the mission to elevate the voices and experiences of Jewish students. Jewish students should not have to suffer from anti-Semitism. I know as I was a student, I did not feel any, I, went to, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I didn't feel any anti-Semitism. I don't remember any case. I, I used to wear a skull cap, and I, I, what I did found were a lot of Jewish students at that time were surprised that someone would wear a, a skull cap on campus. I remember one time in Geneva, I was walking over with a couple of non-Jewish friends, and a Jewish uh, student came over to me. I never saw the guy before in my life, and he came over to me and he said, uh, "You forgot to take your skull cap off." And I said to him, "Pretend it's a turban, and it won't bother you." Can you imagine walking over, walking over to a Sikh from India, and tell, tell making a comment about his turban? Probably get your throat cut. At any rate, a new, a new school year has just begun in the United States, and uh, 
These findings furnish pretty much evidence of the breadth and depth of anti-Semitism that students encounter. So university administrators and campus leaders and non-Jewish students have to recognize this moment and they should treat anti-Semitism with the gravity that it demands. The uh, Ronald Lauder, the president of the World Jewish Congress, said that this study offers undeniable evidence that our educational system, school administration, and government officials are falling short in shielding Jewish students from hate. Now, the fact that, as I said, close to 60% of Jewish students in America have seen an anti-Semitic incident, the, um, and a significant number experience hate speech, is profoundly concerning. Now, all these 80 years after the Holocaust, and uh, addressing this is a real big priority for the campuses, and for the Jewish community itself, and for the general community. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I uh, want to continue what I, what I try to do every week, and that is provide the listeners with an idea of what's happening in the Jewish world and in Israel uh, that you don't see in the big headlines. Because this program is once a week, I can't keep up with the daily things because they change fairly rapidly, particularly now uh, we're having a governmental crisis here in Israel, but it's changing from day to day. And since this program is only once a week, I have to wait till there are some results before I can report on them. But the Jewish world is lively and things are happening all the time. A lot of things don't get into the headlines. And those are the things I want to point out to give some color to what's happening. So first of all, the first thing I want to say in this part of the program is something that didn't get headlines, but I think it's really important. And that is the Palestinian Authority has received armored vehicles and arms intended to bolster its ability to confront armed groups and gangs. Now, this is uh, news according to the Palestinian Arabic language media reports. Last week, the Palestinian Authority received via Jordan a group of armored vehicles and weapons to support the Palestinian security services, especially what's called the Preventive Security and National Security Service, as well as the police. The Al-Quds newspaper, which is an Arabic uh, newspaper here in Jerusalem, reported. Now, these new vehicles and arms are supposed to be used for law enforcement as the Palestinian Authority has uh, seen a breakdown in its ability to control areas of the West Bank 
particularly around the city of Jenin and other hotspots, Iranian-backed terrorist groups, such as Palestinian Islamic Jihad, have exploited this to increase attacks on Israel uh, with uh, using M4 and M16 rifles, and armed groups have also fired rockets and rolled out new explosive devices, leading to an unprecedented level of violence over the past year. And of course, Israel has accused Iran of being behind weapon smuggling. This is beside uh, increasing violence uh, among Arabs in the Amer Arab community in Israel proper. So back in July, Israel launched a two-day operation inside the city of Jenin, and that was the largest it's carried out since the second in the father. They used bulldozers and drones, and uh, now the Palestinian Authority says it wants to reassert control. And the, um, of course, the United States has encouraged the Palestinian Authority to crack down on increased lawlessness but the Palestinian Authority apparently is unable to do so, and every now and then Israel has to step in, do it itself. So um, it turns out that uh, they sent these armored vehicles. They were obtained by authority from the American side through a Jordanian mediator, and the goal is to strengthen the capability of Palestinian security forces in confronting the Palestinian armed cells that are primarily in um, Jenin and the city of Nablus, which Nablus is a city we call Shechem. So um, it says apparently the Palestinian Authority itself is unable to confront the armed groups in these uh, in these uh, Palestinian cities. So apparently the American side understood the demands of the authority and work to provide it with the equipment. And uh, they got all kind of equipment from the Americans, and uh, it's supposed to help the Palestinian Authority uh, confront the terrorists. And uh, whether they're capable of doing so is a, is a question unto itself. The, um, the, uh, in the past, by the way, the Palestinian Authority security forces were trained in Jordan in a program backed by the United States Security Coordinator. So the, the Americans have been training the Palestinians to act against the terrorists. Apparently, it hasn't been too successful. Did you get a tidbit? The next topic was a totally different topic. And again, it's one that doesn't get the headlines here in Israel, but I think it's important that people understand what's happening here. Uh, you know, in Jerusalem, it's pretty quiet on Shabbat. Uh, the uh, but in Haifa and Tel Aviv and other big cities, it's hard to often to tell it's Shabbat because of the activity. But um, in general, uh, the public transportation doesn't operate. Uh, I remember when I lived in a place called Ramata Sharon, the public transportation didn't did not operate on Shabbat, but it began to operate about three hours before Shabbat was over. Uh, because I don't, I really don't know why. Apparently, in these neighborhoods where there are no really Sabbath-observing people, they want transportation. They don't, they do not want to use their cars, or they don't have cars. And anyhow, it turns out that uh, there's a uh, organization called Hiddish Religion and State Index. They do a survey, 
and did a survey for 2023 this year, and they said the transportation on Shabbat has the support of 71% of the population, and also 78% favor the army conscripting yeshiva students. So there is, as we know, there's an ever-present conflict between ultra-orthodoxy and secularism in Israel, and these two issues about transportation on Shabbat and serving in the army are always present, and times they instigate intense discourse, uh, which once in a while can become uh, violent. Meanwhile, over the years, the divide between uh, the those who want the Sabbath to be observed publicly and those who don't is becoming more pronounced. And recent incidents have fueled these tensions. There is uh, disputes over transportation during Shabbat to the growing debate or military service exemptions for the so-called ultra-Orthodox youth. The survey that was done by this Hiddish Religion and State Index indicates that these tensions are approaching a boiling point. Uh, Another thing is trust in the Supreme Court has dropped to 36%, hinting at a potential crisis in public faith in the judiciary. Many speculate about the reasons ranging from recent controversial rulings to an overall distrust of governmental bodies, including the the judiciary. Now, uh, by the way, an interesting point, according to this survey, uh, more than 60% said they were in favor of diaspora Jewish organizations playing a role in promoting religious freedom and pluralism in Israel. So this may be a pivotal moment for Israeli society. The widening chasm between religious communities along with declining trust in central institutions is pretty much a red flag. And we're worried about Israel's unity in future. As a matter of fact, again, in percentages... uh, 69% 69% of the respondents support slashing or completely abolishing yeshiva funding, despite the government's decision to increase the funding under this new government. The, uh, despite this new government, which has ultra-Orthodox in the government, despite this government's favor toward ultra-Orthodox education, almost 80% of adult Jews oppose this preferential treatment. So, uh, one other item that appeared, and I also found it of interest, the, uh, the pointed toward evolving marriage preferences. That's very interesting. 53%, more than half, that is, still lean toward orthodox marriage. People who are not religious at all, they still go to the orthodox rabbinate to get married. The, the um, 24% of the secular public prefers what they call Utah marriages, the Utah being a state where you can get married from Israel via Zoom. Interesting. And 30% of the secular Jewish public favor cohabitation without a formal marriage. So 30%, let me repeat that, they favor cohabitation without formal marriage. That's an awful lie high number, 30%, of people think that that uh, being what we used to call shacked up, 
is it was an unacceptable term when I was a youth. Today it's an acceptable term. Couples living together. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular, that's the proper word, and among the non-Orthodox uh, secular community, it's becoming more of a vogue. So I pass that on to the listeners without any further comment. The, the next item, which is really far below the headlines, it has to do with Russia, Shana, has to do with what happened in the aftermath of the Six-Day War. An image made its way across the nation. It was a snapshot of an unidentified soldier sounding a chauffeur at the Western Wall. It was immortalized as a Russia Hashanah card, and thousands of people got this card. Yet for 56 years, the identity of the soldier remained enigmatic. Now, on the eve of Russia Hashanah, the tale unwinds with the revolution of the guy who blew the chauffeur that's been seen all over the world. He is now 81 years old. His name is Yaakov Cohen. And his call at the Western Wall became an, an emblematic moment of the war. It was captured in a multitude of photos. Uh, and this soldier in the picture was visibly moved, blowing the chauffeur. And this photo was showcased in the magazine of the Israeli army called Machne, an international outlet, inspired Rosh Hashanah cards. The artist's rendition even adorned the soldier with a red beret, which he, he was, red, beret, red berets belonged to the um, paratroopers. He, he didn't, he wasn't a paratrooper. So a recent tour, the Ammunition Hill National Heritage Site in Jerusalem, uh, this fellow standing there talking, and he said he was a reserve soldier, and he went to deliver a Torah scroll to the Western Wall. And en route, an elder man handed him a chauffeur. He made a promise to honor the man's wishes to blow the chauffeur at the wall, and he did, in which he did. Days later, to his surprise, his image was everywhere, including on the Russia kind of cards. So. Um, so the tale of the chauffeur at the Western Wall has remained a captivating narrative. It pretty much stands as civil as the Six-Day War. They, and now we unveil a mystery. The, uh, the, we know who it was now who blew the chauffeur. And I guess you could say it's the chauffeur, the, the chauffeur blow that went around the world on, on thousands of uh, New Year cards. And now we know... The guy in the picture was a fellow named Yaakov Cohen. Uh, thank heaven he's still alive. He's in his 80s, and he has revealed the mystery of the iconic chauffeur, for, uh, chauffeur blowing at the, at the wall after the Six-Day War. Another item, which is way under the headlines, having to do with the New Year Rosh Hashanah, there are escalating tensions in Tehran, in Iran, and the Jewish community there, the leaders issued a directive that worshippers are strongly requested to remain from stopping and gathering in the streets during Rosh Hashanah and after performing religious duties in synagogues for any reason. So um, uh, they, there are still Jews living in Iran, 
They still have a synagogue. They still have services of Rosh Hashanah. And uh, according to the message, the, their aim, it's aimed at providing a secure environment for the Jewish community in Tehran. The, the, the leaders added that worshippers are strongly requested to refrain from stopping and gathering in the streets during Rosh Hashanah and go directly home after the synagogue services. And they went on to say something. Uh, you can see this, this, the Jewish community said this, I guess, under the pressure of the, uh, of the government in Tehran. They said the following. During its several thousand years of stay in the pure soil of Iran, the Jewish community of Iran has always defended the national interests and left a brilliant track record in this regard, which has always caused the envy and displeasure of its enemies. The Tehran Jewish community has been rooted in Iran for thousands of years. Historically, they have shown their commitment to the national interests of the country, often drawing aberration, at times the envy of their adversaries. In light of recent tensions, the community remains vigilant against potential disruptions from external entities opposed to Iran. The Jewish community in Iran goes back to the times of the... Um, the first exile from Jerusalem. Jews have lived in Iran, I think, longer than any other country. Uh, over several thousand years, there are still a few Jews left, and uh, they're trying to retain their safety, I guess, they're by buttering up the government to show how loyal they are. The next time is totally different, but it's something I think the, the listeners should know about. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, an Israeli man who was wounded in Jerusalem was stabbed, and the Palestinian Arab stabber uh, who was captured is 14 years old. So you ask yourself, how does a 14-year-old go around stabbing, carrying a knife in his book bag, and, um, and he, he goes to a place where Jews are quietly waiting for a bus or a train and stabbing them? Now, obviously, no child is born a terrorist. Somebody raised him. To be a terrorist. And uh, this 14 year old kid lived in a narrow neighborhood on the edge of Jerusalem called Beit Hanina. It's, uh, it's here in Jerusalem, it's almost a neighbor of mine. So this young terrorist grew up in a home where the atmosphere likely was steeped in Palestinian Authority television and radio programs glorifying violence against Jews and portraying Israelis as evil monsters and promising heavenly rewards for martyrs who are killed while mur <coughs> murdering Israelis. <clears throat> this child's upbringing by his parents uh, encouraged these kids, and they, they support their children's actions. The, in a, an appearance in the Palestinian news media about a few years back, the father of a 16-year-old uh, said, I'm proud of my son, who's a terrorist. So, the uh, that's terrible. The, the official Facebook page of the Fatah movement, which is the ruling faction of the Palestinian Authority, um, posted a, a mother of this kid. The kid was a terrorist in the mother made a big uh, v, v sign, and the the programs uh, claimed that uh, how great you are, mother of the martyr. 
And uh, he was a 22-year-old Palestinian, stabbed three Jews, and he was, co he was uh, shot. So you have all these young terrorists supported by their families. Uh, a normal, responsible parent would have tried to dissuade children from doing this kind of thing. So, uh, but it, apparently not within the, the, uh, the Palestinian area. So, uh, in other words, would-be terrorist mothers urge them to undertake religious preparation uh, spiritually enhance his murderous activities? Uh, the mother didn't ask fathers to stop these terrorists. They, uh, they, they were happy their kid wanted to become a martyr. Advocates of the Palestinian Arab cause often tell us that ordinary Palestinians are just like ordinary folks everywhere. They say Palestinian moms and dads have the same concern as moms and dads in America or Israel or anywhere else. But um, the uh, I, I, it's simply not true. The uh, what, what do you get when you combine the hate, <coughs> hate Israel program the official Palestinian authorities news media, uh, how do ordinary Palestinian parents uh, respond when the Palestinian Authority actively encourages this kind of thing? You get hate-filled children who try to stab Jews waiting for a train in Jerusalem. That's what the Palestinian Authority is producing. Now, uh, I don't like to close on a... Uh, on a sad note, they're talking about the Arab-Palestinian terrorism is not a sad note, it's a realistic note. But I do want to close this, the last program of this uh, Jewish year. I want to wish all my listeners of all faiths a happy, prosperous, and healthy new year. Until next time, Jay Shapiro, signing. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.